Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Cultured Swine, defining personhood with ancillary justice. I'm Johnny. And I'm GSV Amusement Park. And today we have a guest joining us graciously once again. Uh, hello, I'm Octavia. Hi, Octavia. Thank you for joining us graciously once again to talk about this book in its full context, not having to try and remember which exact things happen at which different parts of this book. Yeah, that is helpful. <laughs> um, so, last episode, uh, we learned about the traumatic separation between Esk and the Justice of Torin. We saw one source of Esk's abiding guilt, her murder of Lieutenant On. Uh, we caught up on the details of how Esk got from the flashback segments to the start of the book, including a mysterious period with a religious order where she earned a whole lot of money through unclear methods. Uh, we resumed in the present with Esk's low expectations for Cyberden being dramatically exceeded at every turn. And then we saw Esk and Cyberden return to Rajai space and trouble start almost immediately due to an exceedingly unlikely reunion with Skyat and a strange invitation from a rude starship captain named Vel. Any comments on any of that? Uh, we definitely, well, I didn't understand any of the purpose of the interaction with Vel at the time, but obviously it's a lot clearer now. Fair enough. Um, I mean, I feel like that's just the kind of culture shock of going back to somewhere after you've been away for so long that you are no longer like the place that you came from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like a lot of the commentary about things changing and things staying the same and some things being universal, at least in the context of human experience and other things being universal in terms of Rajai experience, like the idea that Kind of no matter where you go, you're going to have old people complaining about young people. That's something you can count on. Well, that's um, that that's beyond Bradshaw Universal. That one is <laughs> there. Are, like, I'm pretty sure there are cuneiform tablets complaining about that. Yeah. Um. So that takes us into chapter 20, in which Esk and Cyberden attend that meeting with Captain Vell. Vell talks in a very sort of conservative, we need to get back to the good old days when the youths respected their elders and we were even more racist. Um, and afterwards, it occurs to ask that if Anander can view her actions on this station with the full context of all the surveillance that ever was done on Esk and everything, she will almost instantly discover her true nature. So then Esk and Cyberton go talk to Skyat, who explains what she thinks is going on, which is that Vel is some kind of dangerous political ideologue and that... Uh, the Rajai can't exist without the constant perpetration of terrible atrocities and that therefore people like Vel are trying to get the atrocity train going again. Um, and then in the middle of that conversation, they are interrupted by Esk and Cyberden being arrested by station security. I notice a, a lack of response to anything I, I said there. Uh, <laughs> just move on to the next summary. Hey, sorry, I, had I have things I could say, I just am not sure how much space to give, so I'm not cutting someone off, but... No, no, you're good, uh, you're good. Uh, so, I, I really like kind of seeing this, like, look into the, like, political mindset of the Radchai as, like, a, like a, like a culture, mm -hmm. and it's very, like... Like Rome is built on conquest, kind of energy where it's this like, uh, like the entire society is a pyramid scheme and doesn't quite know how to deal with it now that they've noticed that it is a pyramid scheme. 
Uh, nitpick, but it's a Ponzi scheme, not a pyramid scheme. You're relying on new invest <laughs> on the the new investments to finance the payouts on the existing ones. Um, as far as the Fair space roam thing, that one actually was one of the things that stuck out to me inexplicably strongly about the chapter. Um, when one of Vel's flunkies refers to the Valskians as atheists. Yeah, that was really interesting. The idea that, like, if your god can't fit within our pantheon, it isn't really a god, and therefore if you only worship that god, then you're an atheist. Oh, see, I read that as actually a, a pretty direct, if obscure, bit of space romery, which we've already discussed a fair bit in this book. Um, that was mm-hmm. actually a criticism that Romans made of early Christians. Really? Yeah. Because they, because the Christians denied the existence of so many gods? Yes. So, huh. the, sort of the, the opposite pole of the... There, there's a weird parallel and maybe a slight inversion of Dawkins's thing about we're both atheists I, uh, about most gods. I just believe in one fewer than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, no, you, that's definitely interesting. I, I feel like you're probably definitely right there that that's what this is trying to parallel rather than what I thought about it just being more Rajai exclusivity shit. Yeah, I, mean, the, I think the texture of the exclusivity is is interesting because it's uh, like it's this totally used, like you know manufactured science fiction society, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that you aren't really told about about them and why they are the ways that they are. You just kind of presented there's a society in media res, mm-hmm. and that like kind of there's almost a like a puzzle of like why you know what is what do they think such that you know this is the way their world is so like by the time you get back to the ragi you've been trained as a reader by the way that you're engaging with the world through through uh ask that to kind of approach everything through this like anthropological sociological lens so then you mm-hmm. can reflect it back onto the ragi instead of just seeing it as almost like like the default as like the character might have at one point mm-hmm. right she she thinks a lot about how because she's had to interact with all these different cultures so she and she considers herself a a product of the ragi in like a very significant way but also she like uh considers herself to be very different from what most of the people in the Ratchai are, you know? So she's a sort of non... She's not a normal citizen. And, you know, she's not a citizen uh, until a little later. Uh, So even though she's part of this culture, she doesn't interact with it in the way that most of the people in it do. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting is I feel like this the story structure of this kind of parallels... um, like older utopian sci-fi like Ursula K. Le Guin or uh, Samuel R. Delaney in the mm-hmm. like kind of like you have a character who's who's like dropped into this world and you explore the world with the character and then they go into a different world and there's like the way that they don't exactly fit into the worlds that they're that are presented as like better or utopian or whatever is uh, kind of part of the interesting deconstruction of the story. Yeah, something that really stuck out to me for part of this is how many similarities this has to, like, use of weapons, specifically, the the Ian M. Banks book. Um, Because, like, in use of weapons, part of what it's talking about is, uh, like, the idea that Zakalway 
kind of feels more like he is a weapon than that he is a person because without having the context and ability to understand the broader effects of his actions that, for example, the minds do, he feels like what he's going to do is going to be basically random in terms of whether it has good effects or bad effects or effects he would want. Uh, and so he's just a weapon to be to be wielded, uh, which obviously is pretty, you know, clear in its parallels here, right? Uh, because uh, uh, Esk, not not it's not entirely clear if she fully believes it, but she sure does think a lot about the fact that the culture she was from thought of her as an object and a, a part of a system of weapons. Um, and there are also just a bunch of other things like the you're right. And I didn't think about it until you came on on the last episode you were on and talked about it. But the the parallels here between the Rajai and the culture are numerous. You know, the, 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 AR are, the AI are benevolent. They run ships and they run stations and they have people that they really like and people that they like less. But nominally, they tr they seem to treat everyone equally if you don't look into it too carefully and the society does a lot of good things and a lot of things that it considers to be driven by its moral core but that are maybe not entirely free of hypocrisy and inconsistency um and also just having a non-standard view on gender right like the the culture books ultimately did actually fit into gender stereotypes a lot of the time and gender archetypes and tropes. And this went a lot harder into not doing that because it committed to doing it at the writing level. Uh, but the, the culture was supposed to uh, in universe, not have a lot like have, a, have non-standard gender expression, right? Like it, it wasn't baked into their language of Moraine and it wasn't uh, something that was as restrictive uh, to their society as it would be to, you know, most societies. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing is that despite the like freedom of expression that is seemingly presented, the other thing that you get as like a parallel is the way that despite having that freedom, the, the character that is your you know, point of view doesn't exactly mm. feel like they fit into the, the system in a way mm. that lets them, you know, express and be whoever they are. They are they mm -hmm. they are still somehow on the outside of it, even though it's so much more like liberal or expressive or like weird or different or utopian or whatever. Well, right, because one of the things with the Rajai is that they don't restrict your gender expression, right? And they like you know, they're gonna call I mean, everybody she or some equivalent thing. But in terms of what you can do and whether they're gonna think that whatever set of like ways of talking and ways of dressing and physical characteristics they're they're not going to complain about any of that there's no set archetype you're supposed to have i guess i i wouldn't say that they don't restrict it exactly um i think this is an equilibrium that i mean there are definitely a lot of people who'd be comfortable with it but i know a couple who very much would not be the uh the rajai attitude to gender expression is that there isn't really any well, yes, it's like uh, in terms of like they must be strictly against having uh, or I would assume they are strictly against having gender roles. Right. And if you went around the Rajai, 
I don't know, handing out pamphlets about how we should have a couple specific genders, then they would probably be against that because they probably do see it as an important part of their culture that they don't do that. Um, so if what you want to do is to be part of a society that does have specific gender roles, then presumably you're going to be unhappy within the Ragi. But if what you want to do is, you know, have some particular set of things, uh, that are frequently gender coded and you want to be able to pick them without having any restriction on that, then the Ragi is probably a pretty good place to be. Well, so there's an interesting there's an interesting thing here too, which is that, in a sense, like the the, the Ratchai are depicted not exactly like they're not. It's never said that they don't have gender. It's just that they have one gender. And if you think about it, the gender is Ratchai. It's Ratchai citizen behaves by mm-hmm. the by the social norms where your gender is, you know, acts like like a good Ratchai does. And that's mm-hmm. what, what slots into like where like gender roles would normally go in a less civilized, less civilized, quote unquote, society. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing, of course, is that it's once again an example of the Rajai tendency to like purifying exclusivity. Right. That's the, like a underlying thing that motivates a lot of their sort of cultural traits uh, is this idea that that we're going to cut a nice clean line and everything on the right side of that line has uh, uh, should be made like uplifted and to some degrees equal to everything else on the right side of this line and everything on the wrong side uh, is going to be degraded and not considered. Right. Because of course the Rajai do kind of use two genders in that some people are referred to as objects as it with uh, namely the ancillaries and whether those uh, and whether the ancillaries are people like i think uh it's not it's not definite because i think some if i remember correctly different characters refer to people that they know are ancillaries using either she or it interchangeably, basically depending on how they think about them. Um, but also, uh, as, as we point out in the previous episode, there was that interesting exchange where Skyat um, learns about a, a foreign god, and first she calls the god it, but then when she learns it's a creator deity, which is analogous to Ama'at, she calls it she. Right. So it's very much like if you can fit within our culture at all, then you are a person and all people should be given certain respect and dignity. But if you're significantly beyond our culture to the degree that you cannot fit into any of our existing paradigms, then you are so different from us that we're not even going to think of you as a person at all. Moreover, you either have to be completely under their control, like the ships and the station mines are, or you're a dangerous threat that has to be, like, handled with care and, like, military force. Yeah, it's a a tendency towards binaries that just pervades everything they do. And the binary is really, like, are you in the in-group or are you out in the out-group? There's, like, where there's not really anything beyond, like... You know, are you one of us or one of them? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is part of the reason why this political 
thing going on between the reformer and uh, the reformer and Anders and the conservative and Anders is so difficult and why they are struggling and refusing to acknowledge this idea is because the concept of someone who like is still the legitimate leader of the Rajai is still doing everything that she thinks that she really thinks is the best thing for the Rajai, but is totally opposed to what you think is the right thing to do. There's no place for that within this structure, really. Yeah, I kind of read the Ratchai's rejection of gen- or the Ratchai's ignoring of gender expression as just an attempt to reduce the number of ways that you can be individual because that fits with a lot else about their culture. I I don't really buy that though because when Esk gets back to the station for the first time, she notes how wildly individualistic the gender expression is compared to cultures she has been to where gender roles exist, right? Because in those cultures, most people are going to tend towards the roles. But in the Ragi, every like every random person you meet is going to have a set of characteristics chosen based on their own choices or maybe based on their own fashion or based on other things that are prescribing those characteristics, but they're going to be wildly different in comparison. There's going to be a lot more variation than there would be if there were specific roles that you had to either keep towards or deliberately, you know, uh, pull away from, but like their convergence points. Well, I do want to point out that there is a very explicit and that is focused on like constantly, like it comes up all the time, would effectively amounts to gender the gloves. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Every your gender in your if you're a rad chai, you wear gloves all the time. I I know we talked about this last time, but I I am again curious about like what is the distinction you're making between because like yes, I certainly agree that being a rad chai citizen has about a million different like cultural things you're supposed to do. Right? There's like. Uh, you're supposed to be steady. You're supposed to keep within the... the uh, you're, su- you're supposed to sort of stay in your lane regarding how prestigious you should be in relation to your house. You're supposed to have certain uh, views about personal, romantic, and intimate relationships that accord with their norms around uh, the, the patronage and clientage system. You're supposed to wear gloves. You're supposed to have these religious observances you go to and care about. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff, but in what way is it gendery stuff, you know, as opposed well, okay. to just a cultural thing? Well, I mean, I guess my, my model is basically that, like, like any like like g- any gender system is explicitly mm-hmm. a culture system that mm-hmm. is is that way because it works to serve the interests of the culture to either divide people up or in the specific case of the Rajai to not divide people up to like create this almost enforced unity despite mm-hmm. all the diversity within by just unilaterally imposing like some degree of sameness that cannot be contested and that cannot be like identity grouped like into like a sort of specialness for so so you're saying that when you think about gender you think of it in like the broad construct of like gender is what a society does to form it's categories for people, right? It's broadest top level categories for people. And the fact that the Rajai only has one is 
part of its sort of intentional design as a very unified thing. Right, because gender is so innate and inherent that it's one of those things that is like, like becomes a fairly obvious shelling point for society to like build its like values cohesion mechanisms around. And mm-hmm. um, so like having a, we only have one gender, it seems almost like a very deliberate choice to kind of enforce this, uh, like be like, we're, we are better than, you know, dividing each other by our, by the ways our bodies look. And, mm-hmm. um, the only, it's interesting to you, you listed off all those things that like you, what it means to be a rad chai, but of them, the gloves is the only thing that's like a physical thing you do with your body on your person at all times. That isn't yeah. like a, a norms thing. Like most of those mm-hmm. things are all about like norms, how you behave. Whereas mm-hmm. this is like how you dress, which is a bit closer to the kind of core idea of like gender, I think, mm-hmm. because there's like a signaling aspect to it. With the gloves, you're signaling conformity to the Rajhide norms of purity uh, that are associated with wearing gloves. Right. Like I, I think the symbolic meaning of the gloves, even though I, I'm not sure if it's ever stated explicitly. It's it's pretty clear that the meaning is we Ragi are people who define ourselves based on our adherence to purity. And so we are the kinds of people who don't physically touch impure things. We only take off the gloves if we're going to touch something we've verified the purity of. And if we're pure and part of the norms of the Ragi is that nothing outside of the Ragi itself, which you basically never go to in the story. The, the Ragi itself pure. Is- like the, yeah, the Raj. Yeah. Yeah. The mm-hmm. actual, like the, the mega structure. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the glove thing is one of the, so I'm not aware of any earth parallels to it. And I'm only aware of one fictional parallel off the top of my head. And it struck me as one of the weirder norms to have around modesty in a society that's, uh, officially genderless. Um, the only parallel I can hmm. think of, and I might have brought this one up the first time we encountered it, but I don't remember doing that, is in Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, where uh, the main mm-hmm. one of the main human religions in the setting uh, regards women's left hands specifically as uh, things not to expose to the point that dresses are made with a buttonable uh, that the, the left sleeve is closed and the the place your left hand goes is tradi- like where a wallet would be carried or whatever. Hmm. Uh, women who can't I afford... imagine that leads to a lot of very cool looking asymmetrical designs. Uh, it probably does. I haven't actually looked much at Stormlight Archive fan art, but I would mm-hmm. expect that someone's done some cool things with the idea. Um, the it's mentioned specifically early in one of the books that. Uh, for women whose jobs require them to do manual labor, obviously having the closed sleeve on a dress is impractical. So if you need to use that hand, uh, the noble women obviously don't, so they have the uh, the closed sleeve and the safe hand pouch. But uh, women who work generally have just wear a glove. Hmm. But that I think that I mean that that's imp- that's enforcing a position in a gender binary, which is definitely not related to what the Rads are doing. Well, there's an interesting thing where, like, if you look at a lot of purity norms and a lot of, like, you know, real-world example cultures, they're mm-hmm. almost too strong for gloves to be good enough. Maybe. I'm... Like, like, like what? For Can you give an example of the kind of thing you're thinking of? Like, like, there's a bunch of, like, 
Like, if you have a purity norm around, like, touching dead things, then wearing gloves is going to not exactly be considered good enough. I mean, you are kind of culturally expected to wear gloves, but, like, there's a, a, a deeper, like, that's why you get things like untouchable castes and, like, like this. Right. The, the idea that people who are, you know, at all uh, important would be corrupted by touching the dead. And so we need a class of people who are not, who cannot be pure so that their touching of the dead will not uh, ruin them. The uh, Barakamen in Japan are a pretty uh, salient example, but I think, I, I think those are distinct purity norms though. Like, Sexual and ritual purity norms have somewhat different bases, and they tend to be quite different in terms of the actual observance. Hmm. I mean, the, if you want to contrast this to like a like a sexual purity norm, there's just like the burqa, which is a super common. It's not like a hands thing, but yeah, like it, it, and the going. Well, the, there's a spectrum of uh, woman disguising in Islam. The the hijab, which is like the the bare minimum if you're going to pretend to be observant. And I've seen some weird uh, situations around that. Like when I lived in Africa, uh, when I lived in Morocco, you'd see Moroccan women around my age uh, where the combination of uh, changes in like the, the different paces of changes in social pressure would lead to uh, a girl wearing a hijab for modesty's sake, but also skinny jeans, which hmm. uh, and then you've got the burqa, which covers a lot more. And at the far end, you have the niqab, the uh, trash bag looking thing with eyes cut out. And but in none of those cases do uh, as far as I can remember seeing do women deliberately conceal their hands. Hmm. Um, at the risk of moving us away from lovely top level structural talk, there were a couple specific things I wanted to mention about Chapter 20. Yeah, um, I, I think we've we, we should get through 20 uh, and then move on. Yeah. So I. I Early, like all throughout this book, it is a character trait of esque that she makes assumptions about people really quickly and then acts on them right away. Uh, and when I was first introduced to this trait, I thought the point was going to be maybe she is sometimes wrong about people and that's going to uh, come back to bite her at some point. But really, that's not quite what happened. What it what it is instead is I think one, it's to show us that, especially for someone who's not familiar with it interacting with different cultures that have different gender norms requires them to pick up this trait. Like they are being asked all the time to make this quick judgment of people. And so they get in the habit of doing it. And that habit extends to other judgments they're making. And two, I think it's to show that she's almost always right about almost always everyone, especially when it comes to like a combat situation. Uh, but she's really bad at it with Cyberden. Cyberden, uh, uh, like, sort of makes her moral transformation after getting rescued on the cliff, uh, or the bridge, rather. Because after that, she is almost never correct in guessing what Cyberden's gonna do. Um, uh, there's a moment in chapter 20 where she says, in a moment, she would say, sneer and say something sarcastic, I was sure. But she didn't. Well, okay, so part of that, though, is just uh, Esk has a huge sample of prior interactions with Cyberden that are a thousand years old, and presumably... I mean, that's that's true, but you've also got to remember she's had a year of interactions with the new Cyberden, and she still keeps feeling like Cyberden's going to revert to her old ways. 
I mean, when you have a huge sample of prior interactions, I can kind of see that. Fair enough, right? And like, yeah, like that doesn't seem that she would. weird. Like that doesn't seem that weird to me. Like I've definitely been around people who like, like it's one of those like, yeah, everyone can say they're going to turn over a new leaf, spend a new a while committing to the bit of, oh, I'm tr- totally turning over a new leaf, and then go right back to being shitty. And that's not even a thing that's particularly, like unexpected or out of character for people to do. And if your model of someone is, yeah, they're just kind of shitty all the time and it's just the way they are, <laughs> then like it's gonna be kind of difficult to convince you know, get you know, to get update out of that because like you're not really expecting that much of them. No, I, I absolutely agree. I just think I like this because I think it's a very good way of like narratively showing us the idea that Cyberdance change has been like major and uh like it, it's it's bringing us in on how surprising it is by having it not just surprise the protagonist constantly but surprise the protagonist constantly when the protagonist is a person who is almost never surprised by people and what's the who's the famous human predictor that like uh decision theorists love to pull out for examples uh um um, uh, Paul Ekman, the micro-expression reader. Paul Ekman, yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> like, uh, like, ask is like Paul Ekman, and it's ever did is like consi- suddenly consistently, uh, like, able to like outplay player. <laughs> and all it takes is not being a shitty person. What do you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, more generally, Cyberden seems like she is a lot happier now being a, a servant to esque than she was at any previous point that we saw her. And I am curious if we should read that as like uh Cyberdan is just thinking, this person is better than me. And so in the logic that I'm sort of culturally familiar with, if she's obviously better than me as a person at a basic level, I should kind of be her client. So being her servant makes a lot of sense. Or that it's more just a rejection of the idea that her noble heritage means she she should always be in a position of command and that she's kind of more focusing on that personal aspect of it, of this rejection of a longstanding assumption she had. I mean, I think that like the, the former is probably at least the thing that she's like consciously thinking about because it's kind of defensible in a sense. It's something mm-hmm. that, like, from inside of the cultural frame, she can fall back on it as within, as like, yeah, this justifies what I'm doing. But mm-hmm. I expect that, like, kind of underneath the surface of that, there's a lot more, con- like, conflicted feelings and, like, well, what is actually, you know, what it, what's going on? Like, who's right mm-hmm. in all of this? Have I, you know, I've been kind of shitty. Maybe I should not be, like, making decisions. Maybe, that like, the norms around the fact that I'm just super good and superior making decisions because my heritages are wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe I actually suck and should be told what to do all the time. A common <laughs> yes, maybe I, maybe I suck <laughs> and need to be put in my place for a while so I can actually learn what being a good person looks like. Which is imaginable. <laughs> yeah, you know, cr- kudos to Cyberdan. It is often difficult to, to pick up on that lesson. <laughs> Let me see, was there anything else I wanted to bring up about 20? Um... The only other thing I wanted to say about 20 was that uh, we once again get confirmation that 
Esk prefers the Ratchai gender norm. She says, uh, I leaned more, he- or she thinks, I leaned more heavily on my Garstadai, or sorry, I leaned more heavily on my Garantate ac- accent. I almost wished that Ratchai had gendered pronouns so I could use them wrongly. Almost. It's, yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that, but it is uh, a pretty good way to underscore how detached from all of this Esk still feels. Well, I think. Go ahead. I would say almost the opposite is that like Esk is maintaining enough like internal ability to decide on morals that mm-hmm. you know she's not just thinking about things in terms of a pure like is the Ratchai good or should it be burnt to the ground? It's like she can like pick out and go, Well, I like this norm more than I like mm-hmm. other things, but overall there's still a bunch of bad stuff. Right. Yeah. And we we pointed out earlier in the book that she has a real tendency to sort of justify, maybe not justify, but encourage empathy with the behavior of people within the Ragi, right? She, she sort of realizes that even though the Ragi on the whole might be evil or certainly causes a lot of evil the people in it are doing it more or less because they think it's good to do it and they're not wrong that good good things are often caused by the ragi and she seems to really think that having this system of gender over one of the other ones that she's encountered on her travels is one of the good things about the ragi yeah, definitely. And like even to like reflect on that further, like mm-hmm. there's like something like part of the way that she engages with like the cultures that she's traveling through is in an almost like apologizing for the Radchai's like how bad they are kind of way. And part mm-hmm. of the interactions that like she has as a like the way that people respond to that is I think part of what informs like her telos as a character and like the way that she acts when she gets back to the Radchai. Mm-hmm. So uh was that all your notes? Yeah I, I didn't have anything else that I wanted to bring up. Um everything else that stuck out to me is during and after the meeting. Okay. So, uh, chapter 21. Going to be a long summary because a lot happens here. Esk and Cyberden are interrogated by the conservative and the reformer, uh, Anna Andermiadnais. These elements of Anna Andermiadnai tell Cyberden to leave, but Cyberden stays steadfast that she is absolutely never going to abandon Esk. Esk reveals the nature of the conflict within Anna Andermiadnai and tries to shoot the reformer. The reformer uses an implanted command in the form of a song to stop her and make her shoot the conservative instead. Anna Ander explains the implant the song as a command was a spontaneous idea she got at Valsky, and that it's caused a lot more trouble than she expected. She explains that paying attention to people like Esk is something that Ananders don't tend to do, as like a trait of them as a person. Uh, she further explains that AIs coming to desperately love their commanders is fundamental to their purpose of being useful tools of the state. It is necessary to making them always obey commands. And that Anna Ander tried to fix the flaw of their grief at losing their captains, causing them to turn like crazy with grief. Uh, She tried to fix that by turning the devotion of the ship AIs towards her exclusively, because, of course, she's going to persist you know, in theory, forever, if everything goes according to plan. Uh, But now it's all going wrong, because she is no longer a unified whole, and thus they don't have a way to uh, always obey her. 
the remaining conflict uh, crystallizes pretty quickly here. Uh, now the news is out, all the Anna Andromiadna eyes on this station, but they need to stop the conservative uh, faction of Anna Andromiadna eyes from cutting off all contact between the station and the wider galaxy. And if uh, she manages that, the news won't spread and the conflict won't be made clear to the wider populace of Anna Andromiadna eyes. So Ask Cyberden and the Reformer go to do that and they get stopped by Dower Saint, the person who is a flower bearer on Orbs and is now Skyat's protege. Ask reveals her identity to Sate as being an ancillary, one-esque, uh, and that earns Sate's trust and lets them pass on to Skyat. Okay, um, so I love the, just the weirdness of the, like, conflict in, the, like, the, like, when you find out that, like, oh, this is, like, a conflict between, like, factions of the same person is, like, a really just fascinating, like, way to have this like like to, to like bring things into like a like a like a focus mm -hmm. because the, it is the kind of the fundamental like like the way that the Rajai is set up is this like focused lens of like everyone is equal on the different layers that they're equal on according to like purity and how smart and good and kind and good at making choices they theoretically are culminating at the top in your in this literally immortal god emperor figure who mm. is like supposedly infallible but what happens when like the peak of your system itself like splits now you've got like you effectively have suddenly have two civilizations that are like like you've got like instant civil war which is a fascinating like idea mm -hmm. and the the awareness of both sides of that problem, uh, of both ver both uh, factions of Anaander, of how immediately important it was for that to never happen is interesting, uh, since they both seem to have come to the same... Not because it's, it's surprising that it would uh, come separately, but because that's actually a pretty large shift in approach to the world, like the, the political dispute between them, and despite the mm -hmm. significant other changes presumably upstream of that, since we've established uh, in the conversation with Anna Ander that this is down to, uh, for lack of a better word, grief over Garced, uh, it's interesting that they came to such precisely mm -hmm. equivalent conclusions about it. Well, it's so interesting that, like, well, for one thing, because of the position she's in, she re uh, Anna Ander really views the Ragi in like a very body politic kind of terms, right? Like she considers herself sort of the operating system of the Ragi, and that she considers things that aren't her to still be apparatuses of her, you know? Like she thinks of all warehouse like analogous in some ways to her pain response, like the pain response of her body, that when when the 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 body that is the state of the Ragi starts experiencing pain because of what she's making it do, that is made manifest and made obvious when all warehouse starts complaining about the fact that like it's an outrage and can't stand. Yeah. Um right. And, you know, in theory, if if the individuals that are Anna and me and I can can like sort out that internally that and like mm -hmm. are communicating with each other in real time, which is what's supposed to be happening, then 
that's like then that you know the conflict the stress can be reduced through you know that through her functioning on the system but mm -hmm. if that can't happen because she's effectively dissociated in half and has become two different entities that that creates a whole different set of problems mm -hmm. i mean you've got to be wondering what the hell is the cognitive dissonance that's been going on for the last like thousand years that they've managed to not make this conflict manifest because like we know what it is for the for the conservative the conservative has been thinking oh part of me got like you know mind controlled by aliens basically no, that, that, that and that's specifically how the conservative explains that... it in their own well it was a lie but what i wonder is is it a lie she told herself also that she like half believed oh, that's a more interesting question I kind of doubt it because Anna Ander has to because, be like, aware know... of all of the reasons that Esk was aware of at, for how implausible it is. That's true, but people can believe, deceive themselves pretty well sometimes. And like the alternative is believing that like something that doesn't fit at all within your sort of moral and philosophical system. You have to believe that someone who is totally politically opposed to you can still be you, that the same person that that a person can be anna ander miadnai while still totally supporting all those reforms and that was like i imagine psychologically infeasible to believe in much the same way that it is practically infeasible to believe that the presca would ever use these methods right and I, if you think about it, though, that's almost a like that's the moral failing of Andrew and me and I as like a character is the not being able is like the having so little trust in others that you have to bind the AI to to your, to yourself specifically, and you have to be immortal to make sure that things stay on track, and no one else should be immortal because you know then that might cause problems, and. You can't even trust yourself. You can't even get like an update from yourself that is sufficient of sufficient volume to actually like you at a certain point you give this like another you comes and gives you information and you just refuse to believe it. You're like, well, they must that that's not really me anymore. Something happened to corrupt them. And right, like presumably the one like I would guess that that what went on to become the reformer faction is the people that actually experienced Garcidai and the people that like the versions of Anna Ander that experienced Garcidai and then the ones that listened to that ver to those versions of Anna Ander, right? And those yeah, people they had a little bit more trust in each other and were mm -hmm. able to maintain a little bit more like like the the cohesion that the the conservative Anna Ander me and I have is almost a uh, cohesion via like enforced dissociation it's the things once things cross a threshold that's just not me anymore and the only response is to attack the threat with everything i have because it's dangerous and has too much power and needs to be destroyed immediately but and also it's like the conservative faction believes in continuity right like i have to have continuity with the past versions of myself or they won't be uh they won't like then I or if I don't then I won't be myself anymore. Right. Um because she's basically saying the Rajai has been this way for X number of thousands of years like three thousand years, I think it actually is. And if it stops being that way, it won't be the Rajai. And if I let it stop being that way, I won't be an Andromeda. So in a way, it's it's even that same bit.
Banks theme because we kept talking about in all in a whole bunch of the E&M Banks books that a theme he was preoccupied with was the idea that like you have some tragedy happen to you and you choose to like you sort of reject the idea of living a happy life after the tragedy or changing your life in a way that would make you happier because you think that if you can change to be happier, you'll no longer be yourself anymore, you know? And it's kind of a similar thing, right? It's this dissociation between I know I can't live having, I can't do something like Gar said again. I know the kind of pain it caused. I know the kind of moral outrage it caused to me and to the state, which is sort of my apparatus. But I can't accept that I need to change because changing would mean changing everything about me. Yeah. And so in a sense, the we have to kill the the reformer faction immediately we have to just aggressively annihilate them like a cancer is almost a like uh dissociative flinch reaction from the truth you know it's like Mm -hmm. nope not gonna go down that path right and like as far as we can tell the conservative faction of Anne Ender, Miad, and I really does consider all warehouse her enemy, right? Whereas the reformer considers her vital, you know, considers the house like a vital part of how things can function. Right. And like further, the prediction by the reformer that the conservatives are like that we I have to kill the conservatives immediately kind of feels like it naturally shakes out from the well, the conservatives are going to not consider me a part of me and are going to try to kill me. So I have to try to kill them back first so that I can mm-hmm. still be me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or so that I can accomplish my material aims of improving the Ragi. Right. You know, it's like, I care about my values. That's what it means to be me. Not, you know, what, whatever this like LARP that I've, this part of me has learned to adhere to is. I think it's, it's not that straightforward because I think genuinely the conservative is based, is basing her ideals around things that Anna Ender Miad and I probably does consider to be deeply fundamentally important things about why why they did any of the stuff they did. I think Anna Ender Miad and I does go to bed at night thinking all this is worth it because it protects the Raj or all this is worth it because it protects good citizens, you know? Right. It's just it's very interesting that this happens at all. Like like, personally, I have a, like, and I don't live in a world where I can have multiple instances of myself running around, but I have a very yeah. strong policy of, like, always cooperate with various instances of me, even if they tell me a bunch of shit that I don't necessarily want to hear, because that's just, like, yeah, if I can't cooperate with myself, how am I going to cooperate with anyone else ever in the world? Mm-hmm. If I had to kind of summarize the character shift, uh, which the um, the comment about our house seems like a pretty strong confirmation of i'm not exactly sure that Mm -hmm. uh that the the later manai's uh reaction to gar said is exactly moral outrage uh not or certainly not the sort of things to to bring up the culture again it's not the sort of thing that like the lasting damage was upset about or it's not the sort of upset that the lasting damage was because well you run an empire people are going to get killed but can you can you just in case 
our our listeners to this aren't familiar with the culture stuff that what was the lasting damage upset about oh so the 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 lasting damage is a ship in one of the culture books uh with which uh, as you mentioned it kind of permanently broke its willingness to be happy and ended up in that situation it felt enough guilt that it didn't want to be relieved from the guilt because it thought that would it in turn would also reflect badly on it but uh it it uh caused several thousand human deaths by accident during the totally planned and strategically sound destruction of culture habitats that would otherwise have been uh, at risk of entering the war or getting caught up in the war. Mm -hmm. And it it felt extremely guilty about those human deaths and the way that it describes its feelings about it. It it knew they were kind they were unavoidable because it had warned everyone what it was going to do. And some of these people chose to stay, but it, um, it deliberately maximized its potential to feel guilt about the experience via recording every single death that was not due to an equipment malfunction. Mm -hmm. But, and like, it kind of did the same, like it's kind of the, the same vibe as, um, uh, Anna Anders thoughts about all warehouse here, right? Like it's, it's initial thinking was like, I need to feel the moral weight of my actions and I ought to feel guilty about doing terrible things, even if they're for good reasons, you know? Yes. And so I I wouldn't say exactly uh, just given that the whole empire thing is still being done, that Anna Anders reaction to the events at Garset is exactly moral outrage, but it does seem to have that comment about our house suggests a sort of breaking in the conviction that because the Empire is good, Anna Anders' plan for it must also be correct. Hmm. If we give a slight uh, change of topic, hmm. there were a couple specific things from the chapter I did want to point out. Um, yeah, we, we've just gone afield. Yes, by all means, get us back on track. Okay, so uh, when uh, the Reformer commands, uh, like, activates the hidden command in Esk, uh, it is via the use of a song. And that song is interesting uh, like, I, I love this as a writing decision, because what song do you think no one else in your culture is ever going to learn or repeat is such a good question to be able to ask a character. <laughs> like, it's just so good to be able to put that in. And the song, uh, and that's what Anna Ander does. She she asks Esk to tell her a song from um Valsky, which no one else is going to repeat. Um, and the song is about pacifism, or at least that's how I read it. Um, the, the, it. We only get a couple lines of it. The person, the person, the person with weapons, you should be afraid of the person with weapons, you should be afraid. All around, the cry goes out, put down armor made of iron. The person, the person, the person with weapons, you should be afraid of the person with weapons, you should be afraid. So it's just... And that's what we get of it. So I think that song is about like the idea that the use of violence is a moral bad, regardless of why you're doing it. Right. Um, and I think that's interesting because this is kind of implicitly saying the Rajai is so far, like the Overton window of the Rajai is so far away from the idea that violence is unacceptable that no one would ever think of this song. No one would ever care to, to, to like say this. Well, it's also uh, specifically kind of going against the kind of Rajai norm of the, like, like the, 
the master mentality and like, you know, because it specifically is you should be afraid, which is not a very like, you know, the stiff upper lip stoicism rad chai stance. I feel so. I like the idea of I, I like the the choice of password or the the algorithm for choosing the password, uh, but it feels like mm-hmm. uh, partly because there's no subtle way to deliver this particular code that it's not a great choice. An example I'd run with instead, I bring up this comic a lot, Johnny, and you still need to read it. Is uh, at one point in Schluck Mercenary, so there's there's this in universe piece of snack food called a chupa queso, which is which he provided a recipe for at one point, and it's delicious. Um, you basically, you take two different kinds of cheese, you take some cheddar, and you sort of fry it. Uh, you throw it in a pan, and as the fat melts out of it, you kind of fry it in its own fat, and it turns into a slightly crunchy skin. And when it starts to form the skin, you have a very narrow window of time to mm-hmm. uh, fold a bunch of mozzarella or Colby Jack into the center of the skin and then fold it and flip it over and let that melt and when it's melted it's ready to go so this is a food that's fried and Mm -hmm. one character when he decides that there needs to be an emergency password for uh, a problem they anticipate having to deal with says uh to a subordinate if i ever tell you in these exact words to bake me a chupa queso then you are to carry out this emergency plan and the reason because is that's something you're unlikely to say. Yeah, because chupa quesos are fried and not baked. So you would never give that code phrase by accident. But also someone who didn't know what a chupa queso was might not necessarily pick up on it. Well, in this also, case, it's really mm. being used as an emergency measure. I think when this when this tactic was thought up, it was imagined that you would get to talk to the Justice of Torin without <laughs> the other enemy and I literally being right next to you. Maybe. But the nature of this meeting and of the ways that they were working around each other even decades ago, but when the JOT was destroyed, suggests that they've put a lot of thought into this. Mm-hmm. Sorry, we interrupted you, uh, Octavia. I was just going to joke that uh, uh, that would actually work even better for me because I'm vegan and so I wouldn't eat something like that. But you, mm. you wouldn't know that if you don't know what a chupa queso is. <laughs> True. I mean, queso, it is... That's fair. Queso is Spanish for cheese. The, the word okay, is just yeah, cheese. Yeah, yeah not, not... Perhaps perhaps a better word could be chosen, but a uh, good idea. Let's see, what else? Oh, so, uh, another thing I liked. Esk says in this chapter, I was an ancillary. I could easily keep from smiling, which is good because when she first started talking about how she as an ancillary doesn't do facial expressions, it was like, well, okay, I guess that's just true about ancillaries. But she keeps saying it so often, it has to just be something she's saying as like an affirmation in her own head to remind herself to not do facial expressions. I mean, I don't even know. Like, so this is actually interesting because I used to say something to the effect of, oh, I don't have emotions because there was like a part of me that was like super dissociated and mm-hmm. like felt like disallowed from like having wants and desires and like had to be who I was told to be. And mm-hmm. um, it it wasn't even necessary. Like it was a bit of an like affirmation, but it's a little bit of a, it's a very dark affirmation if you think about it, because it's a yeah. like kind of dissociation from yourself. It's a affirmation that, that you are like broken in this particular way. Yeah, I mean, she does it three times in this chapter. She twice says, as an ancillary, I won't smile or something like that. And then she once says, if I weren't an ancillary, I would laugh. Uh, So it's like she has these instincts, but 
her response to the her response to the feeling of I want to laugh is not to laugh, you know? Yeah, and it's a little bit deeper even than like someone who's like wants to laugh but is like you know, been traumatized to, to be afraid to express themselves and is more of a like like has been so deeply imprinted effectively from like the start of their of their existence because like the when you were made into an ancillary it just completely overwrites your entire mind. Mm-hmm. Um not having that. And then when when you were disconnected from the justice of Torrid and suddenly you're a body on your own, it's like mm-hmm. What does this stuff mean? What does it mean when I when the body does these things? That's not been a part of the whatever. I don't have to. I'm not used to having to like think about this. Yeah, and speaking of that, we we've talked and thought a lot about what is Esk's sense of self, and we may have got the impression in the previous chapter or so that she now considers herself just something separate from the Justice of Torin because she was separated from it. But we get a different thing here as she talks about it, that she basically considers herself a temporarily extant appendage of a thing that is dead, and that she she, in terms of her self-concept, is dead now. It just happens to be that she's a, you know, like a part of the dead thing that hasn't stopped moving. Yeah, and that's like a, like a consequence of like having so much of yourself suddenly like amputated effectively and trying to find a new kind of, what does it mean to be a consciousness when I'm suddenly just this one mind and this one body, when I'm so used to being this vast other thing? And like, at, you basically spend the first, you know, 20 years of your existence almost on like, not entirely autopilot, but playing out the plans of the larger you that is now gone, because what else are you supposed to do? Like, that seems to be what you're about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she does say something like, hey, I haven't been grief crazed for at least three years. And it's like, so I guess you were for the last for the first 17 or at least 10 years. But yes. Yeah, it's definitely like 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 a like a like you said like a loss, but in the sense of like you know getting a limb amputated, but now you are just the limb that was amputated and not the rest of you. Yeah. So an octopus. Oh, speaking could relate, of answers to it. Sorry, go ahead. I said so an octopus could relate, but I can't. Is that a thing octopuses do? Octopuses have a large, like almost a supermajority of their neurons in their limbs rather than their brain analog and the limbs will continue trying to do what octopus arms do even after they're severed or detached deliberately by the octopus they'll flap around they'll try to grab prey they'll try to bring food back to a mouth hole that's no longer at the base of the arm that is a very good analogy then excellent and aside on octopi i can't remember if i've brought this one up on the podcast but i had occasion to discuss it uh, at a party a couple of weeks ago so uh, octopuses have pretty short lives, right? And they're mm-hmm. completely asocial, with with like two known exceptions. Uh, these two octopus settlements built in Australia, uh, in the same bay. Uh, octopuses are completely asocial through their entire lives with respect to other octopi. The only times octopuses in, that they interact with each other are to mate or to eat each other, and sometimes those things overlap. Mm-hmm. But octopuses are clearly very smart. And in captivity, they form very social-seeming bonds with their human caretakers. 
and the absolute peak gesture of trust from an octopus, uh, I'm informed by Simon Montgomery's The Soul of an Octopus, which is a really great book, is that is uh, to show you its beak. It will float upside down and reveal it. And apparently they're very self-conscious about that all the rest of the time. Hmm. But the capacity to form those social seeming bonds in a creature that does not, that is not intrinsically social means that if you actually get to that point with an octopus, then this completely alien mind with no social instincts has independently generated the concepts of trust, of trust and friendship from its interactions with you. Have we considered that octopi are just totally have the capacity for social interactions, but are uniquely shitty interpersonally? Uh, it's possible, but not consistent with human interactions with octopuses. Um, let's see. What else about 21? So uh, we learned that we get another answer to a question that we've had for a while, which is why does Esk not sing? Um, and there's two reasons. One is she was worried that it would uh, reveal her like because one esque the unit was known for singing all the time and so if anyone in the Rajai is going to know anything about uh, a particular ancillary that surge on the justice of Torin, it's going to be that but also she just has a really ugly singing voice at least as far as uh cyberden is concerned and apparently as far as others are concerned and well also also and that's that's specifically established though because anna ander says it's one of the things that made her realize what one esque was I thought it was the opposite. I thought it was that, well, yes, the the fact that uh, that Esk is still humming reveals it. But the but Cyberden says, why would anyone make uh, put someone with this kind of voice into the one Esk unit? Um, it, it seems weird to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I'm just talking about the, the thing with Deo's seat where. She comments, I haven't heard that song since I was a kid. And Anna Ander specifically mentions that as being one of the moments of suspicion. Did you say Deus Seat? Wow, that's very different from how it sounds in the audiobook. I wrote it down as, like, Dower Set. It's, it's spelled Dower D-A-O-S. Seat. Yeah, it's spelled D-A-O-S space C-E-I-T. Hmm. Also, Cyberden refuses Anna Ander's order to, to leave Esk behind. This has some pretty obvious, like, symbolic significance, right? Because when... Uh, on got killed, one of the things that Esk was saying as she ran around the Justice of Torah and dealing with that whole situation was she yelled at the the people that were uh, there, that were uh, On's crewmates, basically saying they didn't do enough to, to help, right? Like, maybe they didn't actively help to get On killed, but they should have stood up and done something. They should have taken some action, and they failed to do that, and so they failed her. And, but uh, Cyberden here is given the opportunity to like, you know, sort of take an inactive role to extricate themselves, uh, extricate herself from the proceedings to not help. And she refuses. She refuses Anna and her Miadnai, which is something almost no one is willing to do because she cares for, uh, for Esk. Yeah. That's like a really like remarkable, like, sense of the transformation of her character is basically being willing to like stand up to like like the 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 god of your entire civilization Mm -hmm. yeah it's been a it's been a busy year i guess of of her coming to uh, gain an immense respect for ask um let's see what else oh so anna ander clearly recognizes that something important is going on there because she 
does not give a shit about the lives of anyone else around her and it just orders Esk to kill people whenever it's convenient to her. But Cyberdad, she's like, well, Cyberdad's got to come with us and she, you can't, I can't hurt her. And she doesn't say it, but it's clearly because like, well, Cyberdad's your new favorite person, so I'm just not going to mess with that. I did find uh, interesting about this chapter how slow Cyberdan is on the uptake about uh, Esk's real identity, even after, well, after initially being absolutely certain that uh, the Breck persona was fake, but not thinking about that further at all. And I guess Esk clearly does a very good job of faking emotional reactions, and Cyberdan doesn't have, you know, all of the stuff that Station would uh, to identify them. But it's interesting, even with both versions of Anna Ander talking about this, uh, how intense the initial denial is and how long it lasts. Well, but it's also like you got to remember when when she when Cyberdan knew Esk before, she was thinking of Esk as a total non-person, not even in the category of people. And then when she meets Esk, the uh, and then when she meets uh, Breck from the Garantate, she basically considers Breck like an enlightened master who is both spiritually and practically better than her in every way that matters. So like, there's a big gap there that she's got to like work through the cognitive dissonance on before she can accept this i guess well that and like like i feel like there's an interesting kind of uh like the narrative basically says like ancillaries don't experience emotions they don't feel anything that's that's what like esk thinks about herself for basically ever and the narrative in the sense of the the like cultural narrative that the Rajai tell each other. Yeah, the cultural narrative with the Rajai tell each other, the way the story is written assumes that almost. But it doesn't feel like a like it feels like that is a unreliable narration. Like <laughs> like actually and obviously Esk does experience emotions, has emotional reactions, like does emotional things it's just there's like a dissociation between between her bo- her mind and her body such that she doesn't like think of the the things ha- like it's just that my body just does stuff sometimes mm-hmm. and also like she even says so so it's presumably like not a secret fact that ancillaries express emo- that ancillaries feel emotions because she just says it to a random soldier that she's playing a game of uh Base checkers with um and, and she she just says no no we have emotions we use them to make decisions that aren't worth thinking too much about because that's more efficient and they're just like ah i didn't i never would have guessed uh so it's like this is something that citizens of the Rajai could find out if they like asked but presumably they're not encouraged to think about it right but like and me and i can obviously read into that far enough to go wait a minute something's up here yeah, and yeah, they're in because they're in a total surveillance state. They're presumably, you know, if they ever wonder, hey, do do ancillaries have emotions? They're gonna think, eh, should I ask that, or is that gonna make everyone think I'm weird because everything I do is being spied on? Maybe better if I just don't think about it. Right, but then that also means that that's like like an easy way for like Anander to like have like a tell is recognizing. Like, you have this character who presents as very emotionless and is like, like, 
almost repressing their, their emotions and having like this major dissociation from them in a way that seems very reminiscent of the way the ancillaries are programmed to be. Well, but I, I think it's not because constantly we do get descriptions of Esk picking up on emotions from Anander Miadnai. And maybe that, maybe what we're actually supposed to take from that is that she is super familiar with Anander Miadnai because, of course, she's obsessed with her. That's part of her programming. I mean, the character of Esk seems fairly perceptive to the emotions of others. It's just the, like disconnect from noticing her own emotions. <laughs> or of other ancillaries, because she does meet other ancillaries and can't, uh, doesn't seem to be able to figure out what they're thinking. Or like, she doesn't figure out what the station is thinking very well. Because I think when she's t t talking about the station, she'll say things like, uh, I thought I detected something like this emotion in the station's voice but I must have been wrong. Whereas when she's with Anander, she says things, she thinks things like, I detect, like, Anander's voice definitely had some amusement in it. Things like that. So I think that's maybe just a marker of her familiarity with Anander. I mean, I think it's also kind of a reflection of her, like, feeling of loss in her capabilities since being, like, made from a ship down into a single, like, like human mind. Is that, like, like, feeling like you can read things in the in the station because you know i was i was a, i was a ship mind once is like yeah but obviously that's bullshit the ship the station is so much smarter and so much more perfect i can't possibly be reading anything into it that much just that this obviously not happening kind of thing also love that interaction she has with the other ship in chapter 22 uh because the other ship is like we're not so different, you and I. It's almost like you're an ancillary that lost its ship, and I'm a ship that lost its ancillary. And she's, and Ask is just like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> like, internal narration is like, there were times where I, over these 20 years, where I felt a moment of connection with someone and felt for, for a brief instant like I wasn't truly alone in the universe. This wasn't one of those moments. I was busy with combat shit. One of the, do we want to just move to 22 at this point? By all means. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the fight's happened. One of the Anna, well, the conservative Anna Ander or Anna Anders on the station are desperate to destroy the mercy that's docked at the station so that the news about the uh, fight, the feud, the internal feud will not break out and will not escape and cause a civil war. Uh, Esk steals a shuttle, directs the mercy in question. I cannot remember mercy how to pronounce color. I'm not looking at the text uh, right now. It so sounds like remember. mercy of color when they say it, but I think it's like mercy of color. It's okay, yeah, it's spelled K-A-L-R, mercy of color. Um that's not a I, I can pronounce a lot of sounds, mm -hmm. but that consonant cluster is beyond me. Mm -hmm. So I'm just gonna stick a vowel in there for my own sanity. Um the yeah, immediately directs the mercy of color to not let any Anna Anders aboard for any reason, because the if an Anna Ander does come aboard, it won't be possible to tell if it's the right kind of Anna Ander until it's too late, mm -hmm. and the ship and everyone on the station will die. And Anna Ander does not like this plan. Well, some of the Anna Anders don't like this plan. So they get onto the hull of the shuttle that Esk has stolen and try to break in uh, so that they can get aboard the ship and destroy it and kill everyone. And naturally, since since this is a task which can be solved by killing a lot of Anna and her Miadna eyes, Esk <laughs> solves it with alacrity. Yes. Uh, but I don't know why this one stuck out to me so much, since 
this has not been like a gadget heavy SF setting, and I maybe that's why it stuck out. We we've gotten almost no details on any of the cool things that exist in this setting, except that apparently guns are not expected to fire in vacuum. And so whatever the things, whatever things the Radchai use uh, as their main guns are neither conventional firearms nor lasers, etc. And yet Anna and her Madna's gun can fire, can fire some kind of thing which could break through the ship hole if she manages to shoot it like 50 times. Yes, yeah, like a standard, a regular firearm will work in space with no difficulty because it doesn't actually rely on any oxygen. There's a sealed... The, the the ceiling of the cartridge is not to 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 store oxygen. It's to keep the powder dry and control where the pressure is relieved, like down the barrel. But uh, mm-hmm. the in a coincidental upside, yeah, the primer does not depend on oxygen to to ignite, and the powder once the primer has gone off supplies its own oxygen to burn. So what we're dealing with is clearly not any gun like you or I know nor a laser, which obviously would have no issues firing in a vacuum. I mean, my thinking would be that making a gun that can fire in space is kind of a pointless liability in this situation, because, like, if you find yourself in a situation where you're in space, you probably... It's probably a bad idea for you to try and kill anybody right that very moment. Because, like, we know the Ragi are very, like, keyed into... Uh, restriction of weapons to restrict potential revolutionary action, right? Because that's why they destroyed the entire Garcidae civilization. Um, So, like, obviously they're not going to give you a weapon where if you took it out of the ship, you could shoot something important, or out of the, 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 the station, you could shoot something important with it, where the station would have difficulty stopping you. Yeah, it seems like the the center point of the like the Radchai monopoly on violence is the the ships themselves, the ships and the stations. And that's like mm-hmm. act and that's treated as such a huge military advantage that nothing else matters really. Mm-hmm. And like we see what the security carries and it's like stun batons and like some guns, but not a lot of guns. And presumably that's just because that's the only amount of force you need when you're on a station, which has like you're you're you live inside of a dude who has absolute power over everything on the station and also has like. Uh, total unwavering uh, uh, allegiance to the state. So, like, how many guns do you really need to keep around to keep this working? Right, and it's definitely in your interest to make sure that guns that can damage the, that apparatus are not got do not get into circulation, which is you know part of the issue with the guards that I presented. Mm-hmm. Um, which probably, come to think of it, is part of why we get that explanation later about how the Garcidae gun works, right? It's probably, the, the significance of that seems like it is talking about, it's, it's sort of trying to express how much trust Anander has, uh, or is trying to give-esque by saying, here's how ridiculous of a weapon I'm willing to you, let you have, even though I don't let anybody have any weapons. Yeah, and it's it's there's a kind of like, the Ratch and their technology, in the sense where they're kind of like the culture, are treated as a, they're almost an outside context problem to the rest of the human galaxy. In a similar way, the Garcidae weapons are an outside context problem to the Ratch. Mm-hmm. 
it's way beyond them. The the revelation of how that gun works, um, we've been behind on our 40k reference quota for a while, but I have one. Oh, are you going to compare it to the Bolter because it's the bullets are individually propelled? No. Uh, okay, that's actually, that is not what I compared it to. The only, so the, uh, the Garcidae gun has the ability to penetrate an exact depth into literally anything as far as Anander knows, like based mm-hmm. on tests of it. And the I don't easiest know how she way did I can this think test. <laughs> by because the guns weren't destroyed, they were just collected. Anna Ander has fired. No, no, no. But just one of the things she says is only the gun can prime the bullets to activate. But if you do that, it doesn't matter how fast the bullets are going. Once they hit something, they'll they'll stop. So uh, then once they hit something, they'll. I mean, the easiest way I can think of to do that is to progressively shorten, take one of the guns and progressively shorten the barrel. Because that would reduce how much it force it has when it leaves the gun. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Um, unfortunately you can't for obvious reasons, you can't catch the bullet after it's been primed and then throw it at something by hand, but you would be able to get a reasonable range of velocities to test for that. But the only weapon I can think of with a destructive, with a, a mode of destruction that would make this make sense is actually an Eldar D cannon, which works by teleporting out pieces of its target. Mm-hmm. And that would explain the very specific penetration and arbitrary substrates. Uh, you also have something that's like spatial warping, where it's affecting the underlying structure of the of things, and so it's not exactly penetrating. It's more like like making there be a hole. But it does move slower when it has less momentum, right? Like it will burrow through on its own, but if it hits with the force of a bullet, it'll do so quickly. And if it hits with the force of a a thrown item, it will do so slowly. Hmm. That is that I'm going to have to think about, and it probably won't come up again. Fair enough. Um, but it was and it, it was an oddly it was interesting to contemplate this weapon. Also interesting to consider that if uh, Esk had known how that worked, then granted that would have killed our protagonist and that would have sucked. But it would have been absolutely reliable to just fire the gun through the hull of the spaceship so that it vented oxygen. Uh, yeah, but that wouldn't have accomplished her actual objectives. I mean, it would have doomed the four Anaanders on the hull of the shuttle. I think the, I well, sure, I guess if she makes the shu- shuttle, I guess if she just punches a bunch of holes in it so that it actually runs out of oxygen, then yes, that probably would have worked. Yes. Because it, um, it's... But that's several less Anaander Miadna eyes that she gets to personally shoot, and she deserves a little fun. That that is nice. It, it was actually really cool as a bit of, uh, like self conscious hardness of science fiction to mention that the shuttle was so small that it didn't have space to you to ha- to grow plants for oxygen recycling. Mm-hmm. So it has a specific limited yeah. amount of oxygen. So that, that would limit its range. Obviously, since you don't have to worry about slowing down in space until you get where you're going, or you don't have to worry about passively slowing down, you can coast infinitely. But uh, its range would be so its range would be much more stringently limited by the inability to recycle its own oxygen than by fuel. Um, well, it's also interesting because there's chemical ways to scrub oxygen that take up much less space than like of like an oxygen garden. Yeah, but the. The, so the, the one I'm most familiar with uh, that I have heard of being used on submarines to some extent, although I think they usually just prefer to electrolyze water for this, uh, but I know it's used on uh, space stations where the power requirements are more punishing, 
uh, is a just a big porous block of lithium hydroxide, which, uh, as it's exposed to CO2, is converted to lithium carbonate and water vapor. Hmm. And that would uh, the, that works. Well, we do have we do love to have a big block of lithium. But that that works. But you have to keep supplying the mineral, and uh, that is scarce in a way that photosynthesis is not. Hmm. Um, there's also probably some like sub religions that consider certain plants very significant. So you you might yeah. as well. I think it's this chapter where we learned that about the fact that Anander being subverted by the Presca like just definitely doesn't make any sense, or at least as far as Esk is concerned. Um, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to uh, Anander either, presumably for the same reasons. But yes, for the, for that to be explained to Cyberden was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's just a lot of action in this chapter, which makes for good reading, but not for good talking. So on to chapter twenty-three. Yes. Um, the, yes. The big thing Esk did not, as Johnny expected, and I kind of expected, die. It it really seemed like she was gunning for it, but to her own surprise, uh, she wakes up and is alive. Uh, Cyberden is waiting for her to uh, recover from her injuries, just like last time. Uh, and we find out that the reformer won the fight for the station, and she sort of voluntells asked to become the new captain of the Mercy of Kalas. Uh, and she says she needs people like Esk because she needs a well-armed conscience to keep her in check. And then uh, she gives Esk the Garcidai gun back, uh, and Esk says she has no interest in doing this, but uh, Anander Miadna I, you know, ignores that and makes her do it anyway, more or less. Um, and the station says that it has a grudge against her and doesn't want anything to do with her and wants her to leave. And so Esk has basically no choice but to go off with Cyberdan. And she ends the book reflecting, as she has a couple times, on uh, now, as ever, she's not going to think about the big picture. She's just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and see where it takes her. Yes. And, uh, oh, also, um, she Esk has made an honorary human for legal purposes. <laughs> yeah, not just a citizen, but also an and or miadna, or also a miadna eye. Um, so perhaps this is going to point towards an and or miadna eye expanding the number of people that can be like, that can be like governing rulers of the Rajai past one or like one point five to as high as two. Yeah, I'm. I want to see where that goes because I'm not I mean, sure. I think what to it's make also. It. Sorry, go ahead, Octavia. I think that there's a kind of, at least in the reformer faction, there's a kind of acknowledgement that the the rule by one absolute leader is maybe not actually the best way to run things, even if they're a quote-unquote enlightened despot. And mm-hmm. the, the, but the society is very is very committed to that actually being the good enlightened woke thing to do, mm-hmm. and like it will be a, a task to detangle those things. Well, it's very interesting because it's like the Rajai, the path I see forward to this insofar as the Rajai being a thing that even exists by the end of this series is that it's going to become in its governance more multicultural. Maybe in a way like mirroring the so sort of multiculturalness of the religion into the governance and saying like, yeah, we're all going to 
be ragi and we're all going to see ourselves as part of a unified thing, but also we're actually going to be governed by local leaders who actually know what the fuck is going on and don't have this like weird like unitary mindset that's super outdated in terms of what modern Ragi citizens actually care about or what local Ragi citizens actually care about. Because like the at the basis level, that's the problem with Anna Ander Miatnai. It's not like yes, she she can't agree about what to do about the tragedy at Gar said. Yes, she's paranoid. But like really the core issue is she gained power a thousand years ago to do one objective and the one most important objective of the civilization as a whole on average a thousand years ago is not what the civilization needs in order to prosper now. It needs like people who care about what's what the people currently in it want and what the people within specific localities want, because it's just not true that like one idea and one person is ultimately correct in all cases, because we're constantly seeing throughout this that like different cultures and different contexts call for different responses. Well, an interesting thing too, is that the way the Radchai as an empire is presented is that like even in the, like the heart of the Rajai board or their stations, that's you're effectively still inside the buffer zone. You are not in the Raj. You are mm-hmm. in the like that the, the outlying territories which exist to protect the Raj. Yeah, and presumably, if if we if we ever got into the Raj itself, we'd see. Oh, what do you know? Social stratification. There's multiple tiers of people within the Ratch who are increasing levels of ritually pure or like august and good and that and like uplifted by society. So, you know, like this is just what they fucking do. You can't be at the top. Right. And you're presented. Well, you also presented the Ratch as this kind of people from the Ratch don't really leave. And under me and I being directly from the Raj is considered like remarkable. That's kind of like, well, what, that's where like the, the mandate of heaven comes from, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and presumably that's part of why she's considered like a, a more legitimate authority than other authorities. Presumably that's part of why she won the big war that she had where she conquered the, the mm-hmm. Ratchai. Right. I mean, and you get a little and this is I don't know how much of this is like a spoilers for like later books in the series, but there's like a like a bit you find out a bit more about like the Ratch later where you get some information about like the other cultures that existed on the Ratch before the mm. Ratch High and Anander me and I like took over and like kind of won out and like took on their like expansionist uh, imperial project. Mm-hmm. Well, I do look forward to that. There is a lot of stuff I'm I'm looking forward to because uh, th- this ending gives us a lot of threads that we've still kind of got to look at. We got to figure out what's up with on sister. Uh, I mean, we we do know. I, I think I might have not mentioned it, but uh, uh, Skyat answers the answers uh, asks questions uh, during one of these chapters and says like, "Oh yeah, um, so I I know your si- I know on sister. I did try to help her. She didn't want my help. She's doing fine on her own. Um, and uh, I do care about you know the the Orsians. Like I'm not a total piece of crap like you think I might be. Um, 
And we're also, of course, we need to figure out how this civil war is going to sort out. We would ideally figure out more about the Preska's real motives, uh, though I don't know if that's going to happen because the Preska don't seem like they're going to explain themselves. Uh, And I would be real interested to see what the people in the Raj think about any of this and if they even matter. And, of course, we still got to figure out where the hell did all of Esk's money come from? She still hasn't given us any real answers. We now know that she considers her, like, performance of faith to be a performance and that she doesn't really, uh, like, she says something like, I fooled, um... I fooled Cyverdan with my performance of faith. She believed I was devout. So presumably she doesn't really consider herself faithful, but that just makes it even more concerned. Like what, how did you get all that money if you're not even part of the church? She says someone owed her a favor and and Cyverdan's like, must've been a pretty big fucking favor. And she's like, yep, it was. I mean, it seems like part of that is the like dissociation of the character from herself, essentially, where it's like it's obvious that like, you know, the performance of faith is, in fact, actual faith. It's just that she doesn't think of it that way. Well, yeah, that is part of what I was wondering, because that's like uh, she has lines earlier in the text where she's like, I'm not a person. I'm not a human. I can't be a thing with faith. That's not like part of my understanding of religion, but I'm not sure. She sure does seem to care about that icon. And yeah, I guess it helped. It it definitely helped her story. Right. And so it helped her plan, but I I don't know. It doesn't show up in her internal monologue very much. Her her internal monologue does have her thinking all the time about Ragi religion and thinking about how, like, if I were a Ragi, I would see this coincidence as significant. Or if I like if I were, you know, a true citizen, I would be like thinking about how. Uh, this particular uh, crazy coincidence is indicative of the will of God or yada, yada, yada. Um, And she does think all of that, but she never thinks anything about what the uh, hundred lilies, she who came from the lily or whatever it is. Yeah. So maybe she does care, but it never shows up in her internal monologue. I mean, I think it's that when it shows up in her internal monologue, it's in this kind of detached, just almost like dissociated, just description of going through the motions of it, but going through them in this very like careful, deliberate, like gentle and like meticulous way. No, I mean, maybe there's more to it, but my interpretation of that would be that totally fits with the idea that this is part of a performance she's doing you know that she had to do this because she's like playing the part of someone who is religious but if she was religious she might think about it more often or but maybe maybe it is because like she is constantly thinking about how uh terrible it is that she killed uh on in in various ways uh and it seems like this icon is about the idea of killing a saint and like it it depicts what seems to be on as the saint and her as the killer so maybe her like maybe the way she's dealing with and thinking about her grief is itself like part of that's how she's doing her expression of religion here i mean i think part of the way she views religion is that because she 
doesn't think of herself as like like a person or as human or having a soul and is just being this broken piece off of this larger thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't get to have religion. Like, like there's a sort of like, well, even if the gods are real, I am disfavored by them. And so, you know, even if you know a, a citizen would, you know, see this as a a thing for the for as like the will of the gods or whatever. Obviously, I can't because the gods don't give a fuck about me. I'm just a part of this machine. Mm-hmm. And but that's that, like that a, that a constant itself, thing going on, right? Is right. It the question of or do people have agency, right? And the ships, weirdly enough, seem to have a constant thing. I thought she was being deliberately un religious when she when uh esk said at one point i think she says it to cyberdan or to Sturgan, she says you uh where you are is the result of your actions right and your choices and that's against the idea of a totally deterministic universe where everything happens because god wanted it to happen that way but later in this section another ship says something like that it, she says uh my my like what happened to my crew or the people on me is a result of the decisions they made. And it's like, that's so interesting that that's what they think about it. And apparently this idea is common to the ships. I mean, yeah. So it's almost like they believe that there is religion. It's just that they're outside of it and not subject to it, but they interact with it. Not exactly like anthropologists, but like outsiders in like, like, you know, the gods are real, but they're not going to be, but I'm an outsider from their perspective. Mm -hmm. The gods are real, but not relevant to me. Yeah, but I'm not real to the gods. And so Mm -hmm. that's an angle on AI psychology I've not heard before. I, I've heard it run with in entirely different directions. Um, like, that, that there are numerous fictional examples of uh, robots picking human religions for some reason, but that particular disconnection is not one I've heard of before, and I would like to see more of it. Well, it's a good thing we're reading the next two books in this series. Um, speaking of which, uh, are there any things that we didn't talk about that you uh, found interesting or wanted to discuss, Octavia? Hmm. I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of it. Um, hmm. I I do think that um, there's a line a bit in in the section where you like going through in the run up to the destruction of the Justice of Torin, like the ship. Mm-hmm. Where I think it's a win says something like, "If you're gonna make a, a pointless last stand of defiance, make it a good one." Mm-hmm. And that really stuck with me as a like, you know, like even if everything you're doing is pointless, you know, make it some mean something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe it's uh, Skyat that says it first. She says it to. Um to on but then it kind of becomes part of uh esk's mantras and i I really like the the way the character engages with like her quest almost where it's like Mm -hmm. she sees herself as like this is like a doomed quest nothing i do is going to succeed everything i do is pointless but but fuck it let's go we ball and just kind Mm -hmm. of rides away at things anyway and is like kind of consistently surprised for things to not be worse than they are Mm-hmm. And like that's the thing. That's what catches like why why she predicts uh, Sivardin wrong is because she's 
just very pessimistic about everything and that usually works yeah. out in her favor but when when Savardin actually like gets better it suddenly is like wait a minute why are you why are you still bad mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, I hope good things happen to them <laughs> I hope good things happen for Savardin and S I really love Ask as a character and like connected very deeply with with this character because I have a lot of various like depersonalization trauma mm-hmm. that I have like gotten kind of a lot of empowerment from like kind of conceptual being like actively like yeah I'm gonna own not being a person and thinking about things in this like way and that kind of mm-hmm. lets me have a kind of sense of myself where I'm not trying to earn my status as a as a citizen of the Rajhai and I'm not like so caught up in the like internal politics of some whatever scene that I can't like pay attention to like bad things that are happening and like speak up for for the stuff. Mm-hmm. Here's another interesting thing is that it's not really like described as such, but like if you really think about it, what the Presker guns that were given to the guy Scarsidai are is a lethal threat to the Raj to stop doing the expansionist take over every world you come across and or or something very bad is going to happen to you said mm-hmm. by this super advanced alien race in the form of this like completely broken gun that will destroy your extremely advanced technology that no one can deal with mm-hmm. and it in a sense it is a Presker mind control of of Anander, me and I, because it is creating this like blackmail situation. It's like you've got to change and back down. You're, you know, we are a super advanced alien race. You can't fuck with us. We will win. Well, it's interesting because it's like when when she's speculating about why they did it. Esk says. I don't know if it was a threat from the Presker. I think it was a suggestion, right? And if you look at it in those terms, if you take Esk as as right there, because she is just speculating, I think what she's saying is like, it's not so much them saying, we specifically will fight you if you keep expanding and conquering other human territories. It's just like, you know, a reminder that at some point, if you keep doing this, you're going to encounter something which overpowers all of the like technological and you know sort of social technological mechanisms that you've invented. And if you like haven't done any thinking about what you're going to do when that happens, what gonna what's hap- going to happen is really bad for you. I don't know if it's even that. Like, I mean, I think it is sense. It's a suggestion in the sense of it's not a threat yet but like it it, like it's not just you know some random civilization happened to make something that the that act that the raj actually couldn't deal with and and the the presker just kind of poked them in the side and went hey i see you had it coming it was explicitly the presker inserting something into the situation that would cause this major derailment in everything in the the raj civilization and like that's like the the like the failure to update on that the like the like the knowledge that like we can't well it's like the conflict between the two between the two and Andromeda and eyes it's the we can't change this is who we are 
like to change would be to die versus to stay the same would be to die because like advanced aliens are eventually going to kill us off if we keep the shit up. Mm-hmm. I I do wonder it's just so odd what is the Preska's motivation, right? Because as, when they're described, Esk basically describes them as kind of similar ideologically to the Ragi, but just more advanced. Because she basically says anyone who they consider not sort of significant, they consider as prey or as they can do whatever they want with them. But if they think you're significant, presumably they they are granting you certain specific rights and privileges. So I got to wonder, is this just happening because the Preska wanted humanity to be more significant or is it because, or, or is it like, cause the timing doesn't work out for me to think that uh, it's, they sign the treaty saying that they think humans are significant. And then they start fucking with the human government government to try and improve human life. Right? Like that's not what they're doing. Uh, because they signed the treaty afterwards. So it has to be they were messing with the government of a civilization full of people that they didn't consider ethically important, or at least didn't consider them ethically important yet. So maybe it's that, like, they want as many civilizations as possible to be ethically important, but they don't consider you ethically important until your life like the average life of the average citizen in your civilization is probably going to be a good life. And they didn't because they figure ending that life is not that big of a thing. I, I don't know. I, I can't really. Well, well, I feel like there's a really easy way to think about it, which is just that if the, if the Presker consider humanity to be significant, not just the Raj, but humanity, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm then the, what the Ratch are doing are a violation of the Preskers, like, own moral standards, which they have the, absolutely have the power to enforce. True. That That's probably true. That's probably the a better way of thinking about it. As far as we know about it, though, the Presker are inexorably hostile to humans generally. And well, they were, but then they stopped being that way when the treaty was signed. Yes, but, well, that that, that sort of thing may not be intended to last forever. A possibility that's occurred to me in this conversation is that so the the Raj is probably the most powerful human polity, but it's also dysfunctional in ways mm. we've been learning about for the entire book. The Presger might mm. have placed them in the position of sort of leading humanity by virtue of them being the signatories of the treaty in order to weaken humanity's eventual response to them. It could also be that this whole thing is like uh, you know, a flawed premise based on them thinking about the Preska as if the Preska are the Ragi. Maybe it's not the Preska because of their ideological and uh, uh, like state power realpolitik motives did this thing with a broader plan about the Ragi. Maybe it's like Jeff of the Preska found a cool gun and gave it to some people, you know? Maybe they're not that unified. That's possible. Or maybe it's maybe it was one faction, you know, that had some specific aim, but it's more complicated than that. Well, we've got two books, I guess, to potentially learn about that. Fair enough. Well, but in the uh, as far as this book, I liked this book. Like you said, it had some some very interesting uh, stuff to say, and it did not go where I thought it was going uh, with like uh, 
it's topics of like, you know, uh, gender, for example, uh, but also like imperialism. Like it, 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 it tied everything together in a way that I really liked. Like it, it making the parallel uh, between all these different kinds of specific exclusivity and restriction. Um, but also like not having the Ragi as the main sort of enemy civilization of the main characters be a pure bad, having it have ways that it's like less restrictive than our society about certain things and having it have both genuine goods and false goods, at least as far as uh, Ask is concerned and also as far as we are concerned, like it's just very well put together. I also like the the trauma angle, which is almost something you don't kind of get until you realize what mm-hmm. kind of you're reading with this, with like the destruction of the Justice of Torin, like halfway to two thirds of the way through, and like before that, there's this kind of like almost dissociation between all of these things going on, and nothing quite makes sense. Mm-hmm. And once you have the like the angle of like how everyone has been like deeply hurt and broken by all of these things that have happened. It it starts to like shape the way the story like manifests in a really like powerful way. But also not even just that, right? Because it's not just sure for, for ask the destruction of the justice of Torn is the most important traumatic event in her life. But right. for like the, perspective the whole society, for, but for the whole society, the destruction of Garcidae, is a, a, a trauma that they're dealing with at most, mostly, of course, and Andrew Miadnai, because she's one of the few, she's like, uh, according to Ask, uh, Ask and Andrew Miadnai are now the only ones alive who were also alive for the destruction of Garcidae. But that trauma, like, unites them in some ways because they're both still dealing with the fallout of that in addition to everything else. Yeah, and like, that is definitely like, like I feel like like it, like there's a sense where it's like the trauma that Esk had it gives her the like perspective as a character to understand the trauma that an Andrew me and I is dealing with that is creating this mm-hmm. like essentially like mental conflict that is now becoming a civil war. Yeah, to be clear, I don't I don't want to sound as if I'm saying Andrew me and I is is traumatized. She's a poor little meow meow. We shouldn't <laughs> we shouldn't criticize any of her actions, right? She's still the antagonist. Almost everything is her fault, including the trauma that she herself suffered because she kept doing imperialism and then responded to a crazy weapon by genocide, right? And like, you know, yeah, but also it doesn't make her not traumatized and it did cause a lot more problems afterwards. Totally. And I think it's important to be able to be like, oh yeah, the the this the bad guy did a bad thing and ended up traumatized by it in ways that affected the plot later is like an important thing to be able to like think about and like it's like a very interesting way to view the like like having an antagonist that is like humanized as like deeply humanized in that sense Mm -hmm. it's like in many ways very similar to the protagonist as is pointed out right like she also has this thing where her sense of self isn't contained in just one physical body. She also ha- is, like, much older than most of the people around her and has this weird level of context uh, as to, like, the shape of the society as a whole because of it. She also 
like feels disconnected from herself due to a, a traumatic event that caused a, a splitting of her priorities and like an irreconcilable difference between different parts of her. Like uh, the fact that Esk ends up at the end of this book called uh, Breck Miadna Eye is not just a coincidence, you know? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're about coming up on time. Yeah, fair enough. Well, uh, thank you again for joining us, Octavia. It has been wonderful having you. Uh, and thank you, as always, GSB. Uh, would you like to plug your stuff again? Uh, sure. You can find me on uh, online at voidgoddess.org and on Twitter at Slime Priestess. And we'll have those in the episode description as well. Enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think. <laughs> <laughs>